Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Decoding the Unknown. Today, the cataclysmic pole shift hypothesis. This is the one where people are like, oh, yeah, the magnetic field's going to shift and everything's going to end. So get into your bunkers. And it's like, bruh, sometimes it's like, you know, I, I'm pretty sure isn't the outcome of this one is like all of the Earth's atmosphere is stripped away and then radiation rains down upon us and kills us instantly or makes sure you'll get horrible cancers and die. It's like, bro, being like buried under like three foot of dirt in your back garden for like a year or whatever until your food runs out is, uh, I don't think that's going to make much of a difference. I think you're pretty fucked. Like, that's it, isn't it? It's all over. Anyway, let's get into it. Thank you, Danny, for writing today's episode. Yeah, let's just... Let's go, shall we? Let's go! The vacation had been going so well up to this point. You only make Barry onions. You got several exotic cocktails lined up on the bar as you look forward to another fun-packed day of relaxing in the baking heat and fighting over the recliners with a pack of angry Germans. Why would you line up several exotic cocktails? That makes no sense, especially if it's hot. Danny, what are you doing? You'd be like, by the time you've finished one, the second one's going to be all melted and weird. Sorry, I didn't mean to nitpick, Danny. Apologies. But then everything goes a bit downhill, just as you're about to take a first sip of your double truffle martini. Oof. Oh, wait, I was immediately thinking of, you know, like truffles, like the ones the pigs dig up rather than like chocolate truffle, which I guess would make more sense because like a truffle martini with like pig truffles. That'd be weird. Probably exists, doesn't it? Someone like Heston Blumenthal's out there, like, making that shit and feeding it to people, like, snail ice cream. A sudden chill. I feel like, you know, there's those there's, there's restaurants, like, where it's like, the, the more Michelin stars it gets, the weirder the food gets. Like, Heston, my parents went there a few years ago. God, it must have been a long time ago now. At least a decade. A few years. It was a long time ago. And they had, like, snail ice cream and stuff. And I'm like, that doesn't sound appealing at all. And I want to go to, when I go to a restaurant, I want to eat something good, not something weird. <laughs> A sudden chill hits the air and your nose turns a troubling shade of blue. Ugh, you know what's happening here. There's been another rapid shift of the geographical poles, and you're all now much closer to the North Pole than you had been a few seconds ago. You turn around to vent your strong disapproval about this to Barry Onions, but he's already frozen to death, his lips now locked forever around the straw that he was using to take a final sip of his slippery nipple. I believe that's actually a real cocktail, isn't it? Which is weird. I don't know what's in it. Bloody typical. This would have never happened if you had struck the original idea of going to Bogner Regis. It may sound a little far-fetched and overdramatic, but the idea of the geographical North North and South Poles just going for a random wander about the Earth has been debated and investigated by some of the world's greatest mind for centuries. Even Albert Einstein was drawn towards the theory for decades, and I wouldn't want to argue the toss with him unless it was a pop music quiz or something. It's speculated that our problem planet has witnessed cataclysmic pole shifts many times before in its ancient history, and we're long overdue for the next big shift, which will result in swift catastrophic consequences for all life on Earth. So is it now a good time to start collecting Frey Bento's pies in preparation for the imminent end of the world? No, no, because if it's the end of the world, it's the end of the world. It's like if a giant asteroid is coming and it's going to like wipe out all life on Earth, you're not like, oh no, I never built my bunker. It's like, no, no, no. All the people who built bunkers just wasted their money. You're all fucked. You're so fucked. And would cataclysmic pole shifts be the simple answer to some of history's most intriguing puzzles, including the discovery of fresh flows and woolly mammoths, the recovery of old impossible maps, and the true fate of the lost city of Atlantis? I say simple. This is a lot more complicated than it may sound at first, and considering that I already thought it sounded pretty bloody complicated to begin with, we could be in for a bit of a bumpy ride. The Paths to the Poles Charles Hutchins Hapgood is one of the names most commonly associated with pushing forth the idea of rapid pole shifts. The American professor and author may not have been a geologist, but he was a pretty clever dude. He received a master's degree from Harvard in 1929, and by the 1940s, he was lecturing world history, economics, and the history of science in various colleges across the United States. He's got a big brain. <laughs> it's like, where do you have a professor? Where do you start Harvard? <laughs> it's like, it's one of those schools where it's, I feel like Harvard's like Oxford or Cambridge or something, or MIT, where it's like, oh, yeah, I went there. It's like, okay. Even to get into there, it's, you've got a big brain. You've got a giant brain. And it was apparently an innocent question, unless, like, in America, it's a bit weird, isn't it? Because it's like, oh, yeah, I went to Harvard. Then why are you so dumb? Oh, I'm just really good at rowing. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck, America? Is that really how it works? Is it like you just happen to be like, oh, yeah, I'm really good at, like, football or something, and they need to be on the college football team? And it's like, but Harvard? Really? What did you study? Oh, economics. And it's like, how? 
How? How do you get by? Aren't you just like wandering around the whole place being like, wow, everyone's really smart except me and the other rowing dudes. And it was apparently an innocent question from one of his quest one of his students about the whereabouts of the lost continent or city of Atlantis, which led him onto the rocky path of the cataclysmic pole shift in search of answers. Years later, he detailed his subsequent hypothesis in the 1958 book, The Earth's Shifting Crust, which was followed up by a revised version of his arguments in The Path of the Pole in 1970. I mean, so far this sounds so not conspiracy theory. It sounds like this dude is just investigating science. So that sounds good. And it's like, normally I'm like, when someone's writing a book called, like, The Path of the Pole, it's some dude who knows nothing, he definitely didn't go to Harvard, he's a little bit weird, he probably lives in his mum's basement, and he's like, yeah, 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 no, I made this book about this because I saw a documentary, and then he's publishing it, and he's just trying to sell his book and, and make a lot of money. But this doesn't sound like the case at all here. But before we dive into exactly what Hapgood was banging on about, it's important to briefly note the crucial difference between the geographical poles and the magnetic poles. Without getting bogged down in too much detail before I've had my ninth coffee of the morning, speaking of, I'll take a sip of coffee right now, the geographical poles are typically considered as too cold, typically considered to be fixed positions where the planet's axis of rotation intersects the surface. Now, in my mind, that was always until I saw an episode of Top Gear, that's like what the North Pole was. It's like a place where, you know, if the Earth was like a spinning top, which is weird because they're not like spherical, but it would be in the top, and that's where magnets point towards, or compasses point towards. Magnets in compasses, I'm getting confused. But apparently, different places. The North Pole sits in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, while the South is located in Antarctica, and these are the points around which the planet turns, defining the rotational axis of Earth. The magnetic North and South Poles are a whole different kettle of whale meat and are hundreds of miles away from their geographical counterparts, which causes all kinds of comical mix-ups down at the male sorting offices. The magnetic poles are the points on the surface of the Earth on which magnetic field lines converge, and these are what your compass uses to point users to point towards north or south when you get lost in the woods and you're being chased by an angry bear. When was the last time you used a compass? <laughs> I remember as a school I did this like Duke Edinburgh award, which for anyone who's not British, you have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. It's this really weird thing where you have to go for like, it's you do it at school usually, and there are these different levels of award, like bronze, silver, and gold. And you have to go do like, you have to work somewhere for six months, you have to volunteer somewhere for six months, just in like your off time and some stuff like that. Then you have to do like service, or whatever for like six months which i was doing in the the navy cadets and stuff like this and then you have to go on these big hikes and for the gold one we had to go on this like big ass hike for like it was like a week and we had to carry all the food we needed and this was back in the day and we'd use like compasses and shit but my friend had a <laughs> he had a boat like his parents had a boat and he had this like gps device <laughs> so you could just look on he, it was this big like old thing with like a gray lcd display but it would tell you your exact gps coordinates so while they were all like and remember you've got to do your three points of navigation there's a church over there with a steeple there's a hill over there with like a marker and you had to like calculate where you were and we we're just like nah 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 let's just look up the gps coordinates on the boat gps device <laughs> it's amazing it's so much easier Significantly, the magnetic poles are not quite so fixed and have been known to swap positions in what's known as geomagnetic reversal or magnetic flip, in which north becomes south and hundreds of scouts never return from their latest camping expeditions. Oh, so that's a real thing. They actually do switch. Do you think they'll have to recall all the compasses or they'll just be like, yo, 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 big announcement. From now on, S means N and N means S. Boom. Done. You might want to get out a permanent marker and just like scribble it on there. There'll be an update on the app store for the compass app. But let's put magnets down for a second to concentrate on the fixed geographical poles. As fixed as some of us might believe them to be, there are others who believe that the geographical poles were in very different positions many years ago. And Charles Habgood was one of the major proponents of the theory that the actual surface of the Earth can move pretty rapidly when it's in the mood. His original book, The Earth's Shifting Crust, was largely met with derision by scientists when first published in 1958, although Albert Einstein reckoned that this college teacher might actually be onto something. I mean, shifting like stuff though that's going to be like a major change like when it when it it's like oh what happened oh there was a like magnitude nine earthquake and a quarter of a million people died as uh what happens it's like oh the crust just the the, the two plates they just rubbed up against each other by like six feet <laughs> and it caused all this devastation or whatever and it's like if they were moving around people would be dying all the time it'd be like oh, what happened oh another week another huge catastrophe <laughs> along a fault line 
Hapgood speculated that the Earth's surface could move significantly on the back of some kind of major crust displacement bubbling away below. Not just certain patches here and there, he reckoned that the whole of the planet's surface could move as a single piece over layers of liquid rock in the Earth's core, with some of it sliding in the direction of the North Pole, some of it sliding southwards to the South Pole, and some of it sliding toward the halfway point at the equator. Oh, okay, so he's talking about stuff that's going on much deeper in the Earth, which I'm guessing is why there's not horrific earthquakes all the time under his theory. One of the methods which Hapgood uses to describe the event in simple terms is to imagine loose peel moving around an orange. The orange itself remains largely unchanged afterwards, but the thin layer of peel is shifted about all over the place. In fact, oranges are quite useful when it comes to describing a polar shift. Before you start peeling it, get a marker pen and plant a, and plant a small smiley face on the orange where you imagine the North Pole might currently sit. Now spin the orange around a bit. Again, you've still got pretty much the same orange in your hand, but the North Pole is now in a completely different location. I think this works with watermelons too. Not so good with bananas. Thank you for that, Danny. That makes it much clearer. Before I was confused, because I was like, well, can we do this with any piece of fruit? But it illustrates the point that the results of such a geographical pole shift from a crust displacement could make things pretty bewildering on the surface. At the very least, it could cause a bit of a sudden confusion if you were popping to the shops for a packet of pork scratchings, only to find your local shop has moved to the middle of Antarctica, and yet even put on your good coat for the journey. You'll probably have one of two things to worry about in the long term, though Hapgood reckoned that the Earth's crust had shifted three times over the last last 80,000 years, each shift being no bigger than 40 degrees. 40 degrees is quite substantial, isn't it? And uh, But also 80, every 80,000 years is like, cool. Statistically, very unlikely to live through one of those. The North Pole had been making itself comfortable in a nice spot in Yukon, Canada, before it moved to the Atlantic Ocean between Iceland and Norway about 80,000 years ago, then hopped over to the Hudson Bay about 50,000 years ago, before packing up and heading for the middle of the Arctic Ocean about 12,000 years ago. I, was just, I just got back from Iceland last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> it was early November, and me and mate of I, we'd like booked to go snowmobiling, like, and but apparently they they were like, oh yeah, there's not enough snow, and I'm like, wait, aren't you like glaciers? But we'd booked like this two day, big like, um, adventure on snowmobiles, and like it's just not enough snow, and I'm like, oh, well, I already booked my flight, so me and my mate, we just end up in Iceland, and we're like, what should we do? Ah, let's just rent a car and see the place. It's so dark. It's so grey. It's so cold. I was like, I was excited to get back home to like, oh, what's the temperature? It's only four degrees Celsius, whatever that is in Fahrenheit, like close to freezing. And I was like, oh, it feels balmy. And like, Iceland wasn't that much colder. It's just windy the whole time. It's so windy and so cold. I should stress that we're not talking about plate tectonics here. Back when Charles Hapgood was writing his first book, the theory of plate tectonics was certainly knocking around, but it was largely treated with the same amount of ridicule as the Earth's crust displacement theory. In fact, people were only just beginning to get fully on board with the hypothesis of continental drifts, on which the subsequent hypothesis of plate tectonics was formed. The theory of continental drifts suggests that all of our planet's continents used to be a single Google-style supercontinent, but they have split up and drifted apart across the ocean bed over hundreds of millions of years. The coastlines of these separate continents now appear to fit together like an exploded jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like with this one, people are ridiculing it. It's like, yo, yo, look at those two continents, like Africa, South America, North America, and Europe. And if you like squeezed them together across, like if you just like photoshopped out the Atlantic Ocean and like shoved them together, you'd be like, fits quite well, doesn't it? I mean, not perfectly, but it fits quite well. Should we, are we sure we want to ridicule this one? <laughs> Building on this theory, plate tectonics suggests that the Earth's lithosphere, the crust and the upper mantle, is made up of seven or eight solid plates which are in constant motion, pushing together and converging to create conveyor belts on which the embedded continents passively drift along with them for the ride. But the conveyor belts aren't in any immediate hurry. We often talk about how plate tectonics are responsible for gradually pushing Hawaii ever closer to Japan, but it's not worth making the effort to learn a new language just yet. Yeah, this isn't it like one millimeter a year or something crazy. <laughs> it's quite incredible that us, we can measure that shit. Assuming that the plates stick to the rough same trajectory, which often changes every few million years, then it would take another 60 million years before Hawaii finally gets there, during which time the island state may have sunk anyway. Many people would say that the later wide acceptance of plate tectonics stripped away all credibility from Hapgood's hypothesis, although some would suggest there's not necessarily any contradiction in the two concepts. Whilst plate tectonics gently nudges chunks of the Earth over incredibly long periods, Hapgood is suggesting that some other force of nature is also responsible for the entirely separate event of the whole surface of the Earth moving as one loose orange peel over a far more rapid time frame. What exactly 
would cause such a thing. Habgood believed that it may have something to do with the buildup of ice mass at one or both of the poles. Bearing in mind that the rotation of the Earth is defined by geographical poles, things could get problematic if one side of the axis was a bit too heavy. I mean, I understand, like, this This is like, if you think the Earth's pole has shifted and stuff, and you this sounds very sciency. Like, this doesn't sound like a conspiracy theory. I imagine, like, people, like, now, because we're back in the day right now. I imagine, like, how this story's going to go, because we're, like, a quarter of the way through, or whatever, is, like, this is thoroughly disproven. And this guy's like, yeah, it was just a theory, or it was just a hypothesis, and it turns out it was wrong. And then some people, who probably appear on the Joe Rogan podcast, are going to be like, yeah, actually, there was this scientist. He was from Harvard, and he came up with this idea, and everyone ignores him because of the CIA. And it's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> simply no and see, that's my prediction i think there's going to be some absurd people in the in the current times who believe in this nonsense when too much ice begins to accumulate at one of the poles the weight of this could destabilize the rotation or balance causing displacement of the earth's crust which responds by shoving the polar regions towards the equator in a bid to regain a steady footing my like i'm not a scientist my general feeling about that is like yeah yeah sure there's a lot of ice up there but do you have any idea how big the planet is <laughs> I don't think that that ice is going to make much of a difference to, like, shifting around the core of the Earth. Like, that's real big. It's real big and heavy. If Amgood was right, the effects of such a comparatively rapid shift could obviously have dire consequences for the inhabitants of Earth. We're talking about floods and earthquakes springing up all over the shop, but we're also talking about whole regions of the Earth experiencing remarkably sudden form of climate change as certain locations get shifted much closer to the Arctic without any warning. And it could provide the answer for so many elusive historical riddles. For example, it could offer a clue to the very subject that got Hapgood thinking about this in the first place in his college classroom. The advanced civilization of the ancient lost city of Atlantis may have fallen victim to a sudden polar shift which threw them into a brutal climate in which they couldn't possibly survive. Which is a fantastic thought starter. Brilliant. Like, let that spark your mind. But do know person who has a degree from harvard and is a college professor but the city of atlantis and i know it's not your department but it's not real like was it plato who it was just a story that plato made up or you know one of those ancient dudes it could also dish up the solution to another mammoth mystery. I don't mean a particularly big mystery, just one involving woolly mammoths. We don't know for certain what caused the mass extinction of the cuddly beasts who roamed in great herds across the northern hemisphere for the best part of a half a million years before the last of their kind died about 4,000 years ago. Oh, we don't? I thought we hunted them to death for their oil. And uh, not their oil. What do animals contain? Fat. I guess, like, is fat oil? Fat's not oil. Why didn't I know that? <laughs> Why am I so dumb? <laughs> But a few startling discoveries were apparently being uncovered at the beginning of the 20th century, which suggests that many of the mammoths didn't exactly have much time to consider their impending doom before they took their last breath. Across the plains of northeastern Siberia, explorers were finding the carcasses of what appear to be flash-frozen woolly mammoths from tens of thousands of years ago. Some of those carcasses were reported to have undigested food in their stomachs, perhaps indicating that they had been happily snacking away on plants and shrubs when they were suddenly struck by an icy doom which didn't even give their stomachs makes enough time to begin the digestion process. Well, unless someone dies really slowly, or like a long time after a meal, then aren't, those, aren't their stomachs always going to be digesting stuff when they die? It's like, yeah, if, I had, if I'm eating, and then I have a stroke, and then it gets real uh, outside, and it's freezing, I mean, there's going to be undigested food in my tummy. It's not like suddenly I froze, the free I froze to death. It's like, no, I just died and then got frozen. Doesn't seem that complicated to solve, does it? One of the most famous flash frozen woolly mammoths was discovered by German entomologist Alfred Otto Herz in 1902 by the Berezovka River in Siberia. It was reported at the time, along with the undigested food in its stomach, this one was also found to have unchewed grasses and beans still in its mouth, along with flash frozen buttercups, which were proved to be still freshly in bloom after they'd thawed out a bit. That's interesting, though, because then it's like, wait, all of this stuff, like beans and stuff, you don't really imagine like being around when it's real cold, do you? Like buttercups, that's a spring thing. Again, this would seem to indicate that the animal was rudely disturbed from its lunch by some kind of instant deep freeze, which perfectly preserved both woolly mammoth and the food upon which it had been innocently munching. Is that necessarily the case? Like, I'm assuming it's just like, oh no, it's frozen, so we have the like whole mammoth, so it's not rotted right this is very interesting i'm still like betting there's a rational explanation 
but let's see what it is. In fact, Alfred was so intrigued by the discovery of this flavor-sealed beast that he was apparently even considering serving the perfectly preserved flesh at a dinner party for his cronies. And who can blame it, it's not every day that you choose to woolly mammoth dippers from the menu. Yeah, I'd definitely eat woolly mammoth. Someone's like, you want to try that shit? I'll be like, fuck yes. I want to eat all the weird animals. So Charles Hapgood may have been on the right path with his Earth's crust displacement theory, which caused such a sudden catastrophic climate change that Greta Thunberg wouldn't even have time to growl, How dare you! before she was silenced forever by the ice. <laughs> Albert Einstein certainly thought that Hapgood was onto something. He even provided the foreword to that original 1958 book, The Earth's Shifting Crust. My problem with Greta Thunberg, just to talk about Greta Thunberg as a moment, is she pushes too hard. Like, I don't, I'm not saying this doesn't need to be pushed hard, pushed hard, but people like me, but I'm like, yeah, climate change is real, obviously. Yes, we should all not be burning fossil fuels. It's insane. We need to move on from this as quickly as possible. Like, let's get nuclear, let's get wind, let's just go, because, like, everything's getting ruined by us burning, like, old oil and shit. But the problem is, I'm not the pe person who needs to have my mind changed. It's like people who, uh, you know, they're like, oh, it's not real, I just don't really believe it. And then if you get someone piping off being like, oh, you're stupid, how dare you? That's not changing their minds. You change these people's minds with, like, slow, subtle undercurrents of change. So I kind of feel that, in a way, it's like when someone starts popping off about this really loudly, I'm like, you're not actually helping things. It's actually kind of making it worse. Is that a bad take? Is that a bad take? I don't know. It just feels like we're not, you know, you're trying to persuade. It just... Is that a bad take? Let me know. Einstein admitted he was electrified by Hapgood's idea and strongly urged dismissive scientists to take the matter more seriously. In his own words, his idea is original, of great simplicity, and, if it continues to prove itself, of great importance to everything that is related to the history of the Earth's surface. I think that this rather astonishing, even fascinating idea deserves the serious attention of anyone who concerns himself with the theory of the Earth's development. One can hardly doubt that significant shifts of the crust of the Earth have taken place repeatedly and within a short time. Now, the problem with hypothesis is that it was still largely a hypothesis with not much in the way of juicy evidence. One of Hapgood's biggest revelations was that he'd been working with Chinese coral expert Ting Ying Ma, who believed that the warm coastline coral-lined seas used to flow right across the now icy wilderness of Antarctica. Ting Ying Ma felt that the coral data he had collected could only be explained by a sudden sliding of the solid earth shell over the liquid core, leading to a sudden and dramatic change in latitudinal positions. But it wasn't until a few years later, when Hapgood was putting together his later works, that he came across something with which he, which he considered to be a game-changer. He managed to get his hands on some very old and deeply intriguing maps, and one in particular seemed to do more to advance the polar shift theory than anything his polar shift predecessors had managed to find. You see, Charles Hapgood wasn't the first person in history to come up with the idea of a cataclysmic pole shift, and before we start inspecting his maps for more clues, we should rewind the clock to dig up the earliest roots of the theory that got us this far. Venus as a boy. Way back in the late 18th century, French naturalist Georges Carl Cuvier, often known as the founding father of paleontology, uh, was first put forward, first put forward the argument that life has often been disturbed on this earth by terrible events, calamities which at their commencement have perhaps moved and overturned to a great depth the entire outer crust of the globe. And that guy was bang on. It's called like asteroids and volcanoes and just like wiping everything out and just like resetting it. This was later expanded upon by Danish writer Frederick Klee in 1847, who proposed the theory of a displacement of the Earth's spin axis as an explanation of how warm-weather animals may have lived in the Arctic back in the sun-drenched good old days when it wasn't anywhere near the North Pole. And this idea was expanded upon again in 1866 by Sir John Evans, the president of Britain's Geological Society, who published a paper with the super snappy title on a possible cause of changes in the position of the axis of the Earth's crust. Yeah, back in the day, people used to have really long... I know, like, academic papers and stuff are still really long like titles these days long and boring but back in the day like robinson crusoe that book isn't that like one of the first like modern books or whatever it's called robinson crusoe i'm looking it up yeah yeah, yeah. this is the original title of the Robinson Crusoe, you know, the book Robinson Crusoe. The life and strange, surprising adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner, who lived eight and twenty years all alone in an uninhabited island on the coast of America near the mouth of the great river Arunqui, having been cast on shore by shipwreck wherein all the men perished but himself. Catchy. <laughs> that's the original title. Can you imagine doing like YouTube titles like that? People would be like, no, I'm not clicking on that, that's insane. Also, spoiler alert. <laughs> 
An interesting point here is that as far as I can make out, Charles Hapgood doesn't appear to have been aware of any of these earlier ponderments, as he makes no reference to them in his books. In fact, he proposes that the theory didn't begin to emerge until the early 20th century. Perhaps Hapgood was less interested in the random ramblings of acclaimed naturalists and geologists, and far more interested in the incredible supernatural predictions of superstar celebrity psychic Edgar Case. Uh-oh. Um, this is the first time I've been like, respecting this guy master's degree from harvard seems like a bit of a big brain einstein likes him to being like oh wait what <laughs> what's going on psychics no born in kentucky at the back end of the 19th century edgar casey was quite a peculiar fellow who maybe deserves a decoding the unknown of his own from a very young age the academically struggling schoolboy claimed to have seen the ghost of his dead grandfather and later had an encounter with an angelic woman with wings who bestowed on him special powers that would enable him to help others particularly sick children this came in quite handy for edgar himself when he was struck by a ball during a game in the schoolyard which left him reeling in shock from a serious spinal injury that same night as his worried parents watched over him in bed a seemingly asleep young edgar suddenly began rattling through the ingredients for a remedy that would quickly cure him oh my god this sounds real doesn't it <laughs> After taking this remedy, promptly prepared for him by his parents, Edgar was miraculously healed, but he had no memory of talking in his sleep. Or so the story goes. In his adult life, Edgar Case would sit with his parents, suffering from a mystery illness, and enter a trance-like state during which he would diagnose their conditions and recommend the perfect cures. The New York Times reported on his story in 1910 under the captivating headline, Illiterate Man Becomes Doctor When Hypnotized. Now that that is catchy shit like we came a long way from robinson crusoe to that didn't we and daddy you say it's like captivating headline i'm not sure if that's sarcastic but that's a hell of a headline that's very clickable he also put himself in a trance to deliver psychic readings to thousands of customers reportedly including such high-profile names as thomas edison harry houdini and marilyn monroe and whilst he was in these trances the man who became known as the sleeping prophet was also known to deliver a bunch of quite fascinating predictions for the future for example he predicted that two u.s presidents would die in office in the near future they turned out to be Franklin D. Roosevelt and JFK. Yeah, but wasn't that many decades apart? When did Roosevelt die? Oh no, that's not so... Hey Siri, when did Franklin D. Roosevelt die? Here's what I found from Wikipedia. I'm sorry Siri, you're absolutely useless. You're being replaced. Siri's still banging on. Yo, ChatGPT, my brother, what's up? Tell me when FDR died. Hey there. Hey. Franklin D. Roosevelt, commonly known as FDR, passed away on April 12th, 1945. Uh, do you have any particular interest in FDR or that period in history? No, I find it extremely boring. But what I'd like you to tell me, like, a, what I want you to do is tell me how many years was it between when FDR died and JFK died, and keep it short. What is the sound you're making? Why are you playing bird sounds? It's 18 years between when FDR died and JFK died. Anything else you're curious about? No, nothing. I'm extremely boring. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> ChatGPT, my co-host. Legend. It might have got it completely wrong. It could just be making shit up, but who knows? In early 1929, he spoke of an imminent great disturbance in financial circles, which appeared to be a prediction of the stock market crash that happened just a few months later. I mean, great. Look, look at this. Look at this. Hey, hey, what's up, everyone? It's um, November the 13th. And I predict that at some point in the future, there's going to be great disturbance in financial circles. Great disturbance. There's going to be so much disturbance. And it's coming pretty soon, if I'm honest about it. Be ready. Short the market now, not financial advice. <laughs> this is just a joke. But I mean, people will probably, in a few months, point back to this and be like, Look, he was right! Because something happened. It's just what it is, you know? It's not hard to predict the future when you're just super fucking vague. He talked of key details like, yeah, 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 guess what? President's gonna die. President's gonna die. And people would be like, oh my god, Gerald Ford died the next day. <laughs> yeah, because he's an old-ass man who was somehow in hospice care. And he's like, he left us Like, survivor, mate. It's like, you check into hospice care. It's like, you ain't checking out. That's the whole point of hospice care. Gerald Ford is like, nah, nah, I'm good. I think I'm better now. <laughs> ah, legend. I'm just going to check BBC because it would be actually incredible if, Ger if Ford had died. I mean, not incredible, but it'd be quite interesting, wouldn't it? Nope. No, no, no. Nothing here. Nothing here. But maybe. Let's see. He talked of key details found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which wouldn't be discovered for another couple of decades, and in 1935 he predicted an immediate alliance between Germany, Japan, and Austria, which would set the whole world on fire. I haven't checked my history books yet, but I think he might have been on the right lines with that one, too. That's better. That's better. 
But the reason we're talking about Edgar Casey right now is because he also made a quite startling prediction about a shifting of the poles in the not-so-distant future, which is really going to shake up the globe quite a bit. Edgar reckons that there will be upheavals in the Arctic and Antarctic that will cause the eruption of volcanoes in the torrid areas and pole shift. The Earth will be broken up in many places. The early portion will see a change in the physical aspect of the west coast of America. The greater portion of Japan must go into the sea. The upper portion of Europe will be changed as in the twinkling of an eye. Lands will appear off the coast of east coast of America. There will be upheavals in the Antarctic that will make for the eruption of volcanoes in the torrid areas. This is very specific. <laughs> Very, very specific. Sounds a bit worrying, doesn't it? But when was all of this scheduled to take place? Oh no, it's gonna be in the past, isn't it? It's gonna be like, yeah, 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 we predicted it, it was 1983. <laughs> According to Edgar, it's supposed to happen between 2000 and 2001, and it turns out that not all of his predictions were bang on the money. For every accurate prediction on World War II or the Wall Street crash of 1929, there were slightly less accurate predictions regarding the total destruction of New York in the 20th century, the second coming of Christ in 1998, and the discovery of Atlantis in the 1960s that's an easy one to avoid just look at history and you know it's not real atlantis is fictional i made a whole video about it we'd have been better off tuning into mystic meg to hear advice on this week's winning lottery numbers in truth charles habgood appears to have been much more directly influenced by the hypothesis of cataclysmic pole shifts first put together in 1948 by american electrical engineer hugh or chinless that's a hell of a name brown this was the first to suggest the massive accumulation of ice at one of the poles could be enough to send the earth into a bit of a dizzy wobble and create an axial polar shift there's not enough ice i know there's a lot of ice and i know it weighs a lot but it's really not a lot compared to the size of the fucking planet you've seen those diagrams where it's like earth's crust and it's like this tiny little eggshell on top of a mantle that's fuck off massive. After studying the layers of rock formations, Brown believed that different layers had been formed in different latitudes, and that rocks had been shifting in and out of polar zones over the course of relatively frequent polar shifts, an event which, event which he believed happened every four to seven thousand years. Hugh suggested that the most effective way to avoid the fallout from any future cataclysms was to break up the polar ice caps by blasting them with nuclear weapons. Okay, Hugh. <laughs> hey, everyone. Listen to this guy. Listen to this guy. Who is he? Oh, it's just this electrical engineer, and he says we should nuke the North Pole, shall we? What are you talking about? How did you get into this meeting? I just hope he's careful when he's doing that. You could have somebody's eye out with one of those. Meanwhile, the Russian-American writer and catastrophist Emmanuel Velikovsky was coming at the matter from a different angle. In his controversial and some might say completely bonkers 1950 book, Words in Collision. Collecting ancient manuscripts and artifacts as part of his entirely not persuasive evidence, Velikovsky proposed that the planet Venus emerged from Jupiter as a comet at some point in the 15th century BC before settling down into a stable orbit and being recognized as a planet. How? What? Did you, I don't, you can't just make shit up and be like, this is my theory. You, I mean, you can, but then no one should listen to you. But during its early life as a comet, Venus passed incredibly close to Earth, a near-miss which caused an immediate and dramatic pole shift, a pole shift which then reversed itself when the comet Venus made another close call around 50 years later before getting comfy in its new planetary orbit. The Earth was destined to experience a couple of other near-misses with the planet Mars later on in 776 and 687 BC, which again caused a giant polar wobble and subsequent reversal. Verdikovsky reckons that the sudden and unexpected polar shifts were responsible for earthquakes and tsunamis and even the biblical parting of the Red Sea, although I'm not sure Moses would have agreed with this hypothesis. Velikovsky's book turned out to be a huge hit. Oh, God. Really? Topping the New York Times bestseller list for 11 consecutive weeks, despite the fact that most experts at the time dismissed him as raving loony. Again, we'll bring it back to something I often say on this show. It's like, if you're shit at writing and you can't write a fiction book, just call your fiction book non-fiction and boom! Sales! Easy! But he did get some degree of support from one pretty respectable name, and would you believe it, that was our old friend Albert Einstein again. Really? Oh, come on. And I know this is the past and stuff, but it's like there wasn't really any good evidence for this. It's just made up. A few years before Einstein became so fascinated with Charles Hapgood's late hypothesis, he appeared to agree with the effects, if not the cause, of Velikovsky's pole shift theories. In his appraisal of Velikovsky's work, he cautiously ventured, There is much of interest in the book which proves that, in fact, catastrophes have taken place which must be attributed to extraterrestrial causes. However, it is evident to every sensible physicist that these catastrophes can have nothing to do with the planet Venus. I can say, in short, catastrophes, yes, Venus, no. Okay. So Albert Einstein's just like, yeah, terrible things happened, and we don't know what they were caused by, but it wasn't Venus. That's not really approval of the book's message. That's just like he's saying something about the book. 
that could be right. That's like reading Harry Potter and being like, yeah, platform nine and three quarters, not real. Platform nine? Real. If it is real. I don't know if it was, but like, or King's Cross Station or whatever the fuck it is. That's real. So yeah, okay. Doesn't mean platform nine and three quarters and the mysterious world of Harry Potter is real, does it? But so many other proponents of the theory are more attracted to the idea of linking cataclysmic polar shifts to the downfall of the lost continent of Atlantis rather than a parting of the Red Sea. Both of these things are not real and did not happen. It sometimes feels a bit like attempting to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that extraterrestrial visitors have been influencing the path of mankind for centuries by citing the mysterious extinction of dragons as evidence. Yeah, it's just nonsense built upon nonsense, isn't it? One of the earliest scholars to propose a connection between polar shifts and the fate of Atlantis was French writer, historian, archaeologist Charles Antoine Brasset de Beaubourg. Way back. That's how I pronounce French names. I'm just like how French people speak. I just kind of blur it together. How am I doing, French people? Char et embrasseur de Beaubourg. Nailed it. Way back in 1872. I bet we won't be using his full name again. No, we'll just call him Charles. Over the course of his lifetime, Charlie. Okay, perfect. Charlie's even easier. See, I was right. It was famous for uncovering a whole stack of ancient manuscripts and documents largely related to the Maya and Aztec civilizations. Although the text and meaning of many of these documents was difficult to grasp at the best of times, Charlie's interpretation is that many of them were detailing the story of an ancient and highly advanced civilization which was lost without a trace following four global cataclysms which began around 10,500 BC. While some may dismiss the text as a mere amalgamation of malingering, melodramatic, and meaningless Mexican myths, Charlie argued that in his 1872 article, Chronologie, oh god, it's in French again, Chronologie Historique des Mexicans, and the documents were talking about the rise and fall of Atlantis, a lost continent which Charlie believed was destroyed by four ancient shifts of the geographical poles. All right, Charles, you're just building nonsense upon nonsense again. Atlantis isn't real. We've discussed this at length. It's certainly not a mysterious continent that's been lost. Of course, much of this can be put down to personal interpretation, as not everyone was convinced that Charlie uh, was talking the right language. But nearly a century later, another Charlie picked up the old threads of this theory and uncovered a few more pieces of evidence which might just point everyone in the right direction. We're of course talking about Charles Hapgood and his treasured collection of incredibly old maps, which included a portion of a map of the world put together by Piri Race in the year 1513. Yes, the Piri Race map is the one that thinks Antarctica is connected to South America, right? And every, it, I think we've well established that it's just a mapping error. It's just like he just wasn't brilliant at his job and he it was a bit shit. And that's why the map's a bit shit. Piri Race was a Turkish navigator, geographer, and cartographer who is most famous for compiling the Book of Navigation in 1521, a book which would help guide voyages across the Mediterranean Sea for hundreds of years. But a little earlier, in 1513, Piri Race had also drawn up a naval map which was widely regarded at the time as being one of the most detailed maps the world had ever made. I'm always like, whenever I hear about the 15th century, uh, 15th century, 1500s, and like crazy shit people are up to, I, it always blows my mind how far in the past that was because it's only 500 years ago right and let's say people can live to 100 years that's only five lifetimes and the shit we were up to 500 years ago was nuts and it's like i went to a school which was founded in the 1500s and it's like there's like buildings and you're like oh yeah people were being taught in these like same classrooms all those years ago and you're like it wasn't that long ago but also it clearly was <laughs> because people were insane According to the text on the map written by Piri Reis himself, it was created by piecing together references from 20 older maps and charts from all over the world, including eight maps from the second century from second century Greece and one fairly fresh map from Christopher Columbus, who had only recently completed his voyages to discover the new world. And Piri Reis certainly wasn't modest with his own achievements, according to his own inscription on his work. No one now living has seen a map like this. All right, Piri. <laughs> Steady on. It seems a bit of a shame, then, that this huge historical accomplishment was soon lost and forgotten about for hundreds of years. Well, two-thirds of the map was lost forever, but it turns out the other third had been gathering dust for years among a bundle of unremarkable materials stashed away in a library in the Topkapi Palace Museum in Istanbul. It was only uncovered by chance in 1929. It's so cool that these, these ancient European museums, right, they're like just hundreds and hundreds of years old, and they just have archives and shit. What wasn't there something that was recently discovered in the British Museum and they were like, oh my god, is this really this thing? And it's just because they've just got these warehouses like full of ancient boxes and shit. And it's like, 
God damn, that's, that's got to be cool, right? Like, that you could be like an archaeologist or whatever. You don't actually have to go and dig anything up. It's like, what's your job? I just go through, I just look through shit in the, the, the warehouse of the British Museum. Just this vast warehouse. I'd love to see that. That'd be so cool. Charles Hapgood later grabbed his copy. I've said some bad shit about the British Museum in the past, though, so I can't imagine them seeing this and being like, yeah, 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 Simon, come check us out. <laughs> I think I made a video that was literally called the British Museum, a collection of other people's stuff. <laughs> They're not inviting me anywhere. Oh, I'd love to see it, though, British Museum. Come on. That'd be great. I'm sorry about the other people's stuff thing, but everyone knows it's true. Everyone knows it's true. Look at all those memes, British Museum. <laughs> Charles Habgood later grabbed his own copy of the fragment of the map, and after several years of intensive consideration, he reached a conclusion that this map was from 1513 and showed the exact location of a lost civilization in the Antarctic. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Habgood felt that the map evidenced a deep understanding of spherical trigonometry, which was not fully grasped in the West until the 18th century, and was most likely not even grasped by Race himself at the time. So, it was perhaps originally at work in the older source maps that Race was using as a reference, and perhaps some of these maps were put together by a highly advanced civilization who really knew their shit and who probably invented the selfie toaster several thousands of years before we got around to it. But the question remains over how such a civilization could have been wiped off the map. Habgood believed that the, 19, that the 1513 map displayed a big lump of southern landmass, which was about the same size and shape as Antarctica, a continent which wasn't officially discovered until the 19th century. It wasn't in exactly the right place and was much further away from the South Pole than you would usually expect, so the wasn't quite so much nip in the air that you might experience during a holiday there today. In fact, it looked like quite a cozy place to live, but Habgood was of the opinion that this earlier, sunnier model of Antarctica could originally have been home to the higher brain race of Atlanteans. Oh, Habgood, you've fallen down a hole of, like, nonsense, haven't you? And although it's suggested that Atlantis sunk to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, Habgood's theory is that the population may have instead suffered a fate similar to those flash-frozen, flavor-sealed woolly mammoths that we mentioned earlier. A cataclysmic pole shift moved the continent formerly known as Atlantis closer to the South Pole and swiftly buried the city underneath the ice where it remains undiscovered to this day in the continent we now recognize as Antarctica. It's a chilling thought, and who's to say he's wrong? Whilst we're still chewing over the merits or lack of them on a geo of a geopolitical geographical sorry Simon, get your words out, pole shift hypothesis, we should pause for a moment to consider another very different type of pole shift, which may be of more pressing concern. Magnetic flips and true wonders. Charles Hapgood may have had some unusual ideas, but he was no scaremonger. He was never trying to imply that we're all due to face another cataclysmic pole shift in the very near future, and then we need to be stocking up on emergency woolly hats and mittens. However, you can't say the same for former American TV host turned podcaster and conspiracy theorist Joe Rogan. No. No way! I was totally joking about this being the sort of thing that would appear on Joe Rogan. And uh, here we are! <laughs> when fiction becomes reality. On a recent edition of his Joe Rogan Experience podcast, broadcast in January 2023, Joe was chatting to YouTuber Jimmy Corsetti about the possibility of a different kind of polar shift taking place very soon. A shift of the magnetic poles. Corsetti was explaining the theory that the magnetic poles effectively flip right over every 6,500 years before the Earth corrects itself seven days later. During this period of confusion, everything turns to shit for about a week, and the big concern is that we're already long overdue for the next magnetic flip. Rogan asks his guest, how much of that is agreed upon, that there could be a time where the magnetic poles actually shift? Corsetti's answer is simple this is science. But is it really science? <laughs> Just how scared do we need to be? One of the first people to popularize the theory of imminent magnetic pole shift was American writer and former electrical engineer Chan Thomas in his controversial 1963 book The Adam and Eve Theory, The History of Cataclysms. It's widely reported in modern times that this book was viewed by the CIA as being too hot to handle and that most of it was banned for 50 years until it was eventually declassified in 2013. I'm not entirely convinced that's true. It's a little confusing, but it seems the CIA did classify other documents which contained pages from Chan Thomas's work as reference material, but it doesn't look as if the book itself was specifically classified at any point. In fact, it looks more like nobody bothered to properly publish it until 2013, after which it developed something of a cult following. Again, let me bring up 
publish something as fiction, label it as fact, and BAM! Book sales, baby! Largely fueled by intrigue over what the CIA was supposed to have banned. Book sales. It's just about book sales, isn't it? But it's difficult to find anything in the book which the CIA would have deemed unfit for public consumption. Chan Thomas argued that the magnetic poles shift every few thousand years, resulting in catastrophic events which come close to wiping out all life on Earth. He believed that the first magnetic shift occurred during the time of Adam and Eve, hence the name of his book and theory. Yo, Adam and Eve is some Old Testament shit, bro. That's not real. Like, that's not history. That's like fable. Whilst the second was responsible for causing the Great Flood that kept Noah and his animal chum so busy in 2350 BC. Bro, this, no, no. We know what was happening 5,000 years ago. I mean, roughly. It, no, no. He also believed the third magnetic pole shift may be on the way very soon. Before we get too carried away, we should also point out that Chan Thomas claimed to be a psychic, So, and he also reveals in the book that Jesus Christ was abducted by aliens, so he's kind of talking bollocks right? We all know that Jesus Christ would have used his kung fu skills to tackle any attempted alien abduction. Yes, that's why it's bullshit, Danny. <laughs> that's why. Well, yes, but he may not have been far for, as far from the truth as you may think. Uh, okay. As we mentioned before, the magnetic poles have a very different proposition to the geographic poles. The Earth's magnetic field is generated deep in the bowels of the planet by the convection of liquid iron within the core, helped along its way by planetary rotation. You can imagine the top half of the field poking out at the magnetic north pole, whilst the bottom half pokes out at the magnetic south pole. And this magnetic field is pretty important to life on Earth, as it protects us from nasty solar winds and cosmic rays and lethal doses of UV radiation, while also helping all life on Earth, not just humans navigate their way around the planet. But the magnetic field is in a constant state of flux. So is it out of the question that over a long period of time the polarity could be completely reversed and the magnetic north and south poles effectively swap places? Well, actually, the answer is yes. It has happened before and it will happen again. Yeah, I feel like this is science, that the magnetic poles shift. It just doesn't cause like this, you know, <laughs> sudden doom and it's not sliding around like an orange. Researchers have been able to reconstruct the history of the Earth's magnetic field over the last 160 million years by sampling rocks and fossils from the ocean floor and using radiometric dating techniques to uncover the historical evidence buried within. <laughs> How? <laughs> I know it's like this is real science, and it's like, wait, so they're finding things on the bottom of the floor from like a really long time ago, and that tells them how the poles, like how, how they knew which way was north and which way was south, like a really long ass time ago. And it's like, I'm sure they do, <laughs> and it's some incredible science or whatever, but it's like, what? That's amazing. Science is cool. And it's now widely accepted that when the magnetic field weakens before surging in strength in the opposite direction, this eventually creates a magnetic pole reversal, which has actually happened hundreds of times over the last 160 million years. But whereas Thomas Jan and others reckon that these magnetic pole reversals occur every few thousand years, a complete flip of the locations only takes place roughly every 200,000 or 300,000 years. We've experienced a titchy a bit. We've experienced a titchier breed of reversals or excursions in relatively recent times, during which there is a field reversal in the liquid outer core but not the solid inner core. The last one was known as the Las Champs excursion and occurred 42,000 years ago. The whole lazy excursion lasted around a thousand years and there's no evidence that it caused any significant upheaval to the planet. Yeah, that's another thing I feel like I know about this. It's like, yeah, if, they sh if the poles shifted, it'd be like nothing really changed. But it's something that might sound like good reason to panic. Although a full-on pole reversal occurs every roughly 200,000 or 300,000 years, the last one was a whopping 780,000 years ago. So does this mean we're long overdue for the next one? And what will happen when it comes? It sure sounds like we are. Well, the first thing to bear in mind is that while some alarmists reckon that the whole process causes a rapid catastrophe over the course of a week, it actually takes up to 5,000 years to complete. And even if a magnetic pole reversal got underway tomorrow, you'd never know a thing about it in your lifetime, neither would your children or your grandchildren. Children. The whole process would gradually unfold over many, many generations, and there's no reason to believe that it would involve hugely dramatic consequences. I mean, it would prove to be a pain in the ass for humans trying to make sense of their old compass, although I suspect that at least one shrewd company out there will pounce on the gap in the market for backward compasses. It may have more troubling consequences for migrating animals who use their internal compasses to reach their destination and are more likely to end up roaming around in the exact opposite direction than they intended. But we're certainly not talking about earthquakes or giant Noah-style floods or the rapid acceleration of climate change. There's no evidence at all of any historical link between a magnetic pole flip and climate change. According to NASA, who usually know what they're talking about, the evidence collected from geological or fossil records is that there would be no dramatic changes in store for the Earth, except perhaps a little turbulence with the electric grids. Okay, so a little turbulence over 5,000 years, over generations upon generations of humans. 
It's like exactly what I thought. Nothing's gonna happen. It's just slowly gonna change. It's, that's it. That's it. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. But that doesn't sell any books, does it? It probably doesn't even get that many YouTube views. As for when the next one is due, it might be that we're long overdue for another geomagnetic reversal, but the truth of the matter is that nobody really knows why there's been such a long gap since the last one, and nobody has a clue when the next one is likely to strike. It might be another thousand years. It might be another 200,000 years. It might be another 780,000 years. But either way, despite what you've heard on the Joe Rogan experience, there is no need for us to start getting especially worried if one got underway tomorrow, as we're unlikely to see the full effect from another few thousand years. So, if magnetic poles are very much capable of shifting about, maybe the geographical poles also fancy a change of scenery from time to time. As recently as 2018, geologists came to the now widely accepted conclusion that the geographical poles have indeed moved about in a phenomenon known as true polar wonder, and that the poles really were in different places millions of years ago. It's not quite the same as what Charles Hapgood and his pals were suggesting, as we're talking about the rotation of the Earth with respect to a fixed, ax fixed spin axis, which caused causes the actual spin axis to lie over the new physical location. Still with me? <laughs> Daddy, my mind was just like a blah 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 blah. <laughs> uh, good. Please remember to tell me what I'm talking about in the comments. Yeah. It's like, you know, I like I read some scripts sometimes, and it's like, you know when the, like, and it'll be some, like, feedback going to my writer, I'll be like, did you understand this? And the writer will be like, honestly, no. And I'm like, well, how do you expect anyone who's watching it to understand it? And they'll be like, I don't know. And I'll be like, well, revise it. Because <laughs> otherwise it's no use to anyone, is it? But here, on Decoding the Unknown, we allow a little bit more, like, um creative freedom because that's the point Danny's trying to make is that this is ununderstandable because it seems to be nonsense. It really just boils down to a planetary balancing act caused by an uneven distribution of weight in the Earth's mantle which lies between the core and the thin outer crust. If the Earth finds itself battling with an uneven weight it will tilt and rotate in a in a bid to push the extra weight somewhere nearer the equator. So, if for example an absolutely mind-bogglingly massive volcano begins to form away from the equator, the force of the rotation of the Earth will try to pull the volcano closer towards the equator to try and reorientate the whole planet. Whilst the poles will still be pointing in the same direction, they will have physically moved to a new location on the surface. Researchers have analyzed the evidence left behind on the ocean bed by movements of the Earth's tectonic plates and reached the conclusion that the planet has witnessed the effect of true polar wonders in the past. The location of the poles may have shifted as much as 50 degrees. But, yeah, I mean, this happens, but it's not like some thing that is like, oh yeah, big, big deal, just suddenly happens. It's like it was a millions of years, like plate tectonics. It's like we talked about how, like, Europe and America once mashed together. It's like you just look at the thing and you're like, yeah, they fit nice. But it takes a really long time. But you have to go back a long way, and you have to be very patient to observe a true polar wonder in motion. It's now believed that the rate of true polar wonder is less than one degree every million years. And you may have to go back several million years to notice any significant damn difference to the landscape. Exactly. So it's not so much a cataclysmic pole shift, it's more of a very leisurely meandering stroll with no relation to what Hapgood was proposing about a rapid change in location with respect to the underlying surface rather than to the axis. And again, it's not really something to keep us awake at night as it's hardly going to impact our immediate or even our far distant future. But is it possible to dig up some truth which gets us any closer to the kind of cataclysmic pole shifts that Habgood and his notable forebears were hypothesizing? And could these rapid pole shifts really have been responsible for the dark myths and legends and fairy tales circling the fate of Atlantis, Noah's Great Flood, and the tragic closure of the final branch of Woolworths? I mean, the only one of those things that's real is that Woolworths closed and no one minds. Woolworths was a weird place. It's this store in the UK which sold everything, but also nothing. It's like you could go in there and buy some sweets. You could buy like a lawnmower. Why? Why Woolworths? Why did you exist? If you're keen to move on to watching a simpler video about how to train a badger to drive a double-decker bus, then I can prematurely reveal that the answer is no. <laughs> but stick around for more details if you're the kind of person who's patient enough to sit out the entire true polar wonder without even needing to nip out and top up the popcorn. A cataclysmic failure. It would seem that even Charles Hapgood and Albert Einstein were destined to have a few changes of heart about the original hypothesis expressed in the 1958 book The Earth's Shifting Crust, specifically to do with the cause of such a rapid geographical shift. Now, that's a really good thing. Danny's kind of said, maybe I'm just reading it wrong, but it's like a few changes of heart. Sounds like, oh, you had a bit of a change of heart, did you? Sounds negative, but it's like scientists changing their opinion is a good thing. 
because that's what scientists are supposed to do. It's like new evidence is presented. Mind changed. Excellent news. You may remember that Hapgood ventured that the shift was caused by the heavy buildup of ice at one of the poles, which would cause imbalance and, and prompt the panicked planet's crust to try and destabilize the rotation by shoving the polar regions towards the equator. This was an idea that Hapgood appeared to borrow from an earlier hypothesis put forward by Hugh Orchinkloss Brown in 1948, the dude from before with that weird middle name, Orchinkloss. How is that a name? But Einstein had second thoughts about this after the publication of the book, feeling that the accumulation of ice would not be remotely powerful enough to have any effect on the crust. Yes. Yeah, he's, you see, the crust is so thin. In his own words, without a doubt, the Earth's crust is strong enough to not give way proportionally as the ice is deposited. When Habgood got around putting together a revised edition of his work, The Path of the Pole, in 1970, he took Einstein's point and conceded that my own further research confirmed the truth of his observation, which involved technicalities of geophysics. Alright, so what other answer did Hapgood and Einstein boil up between them as an alternative and explanation for the cause? Well, they didn't really have one. Hapgood just reached the vague conclusion that it must be something to do with a mysterious, unidentified causative force beneath the surface of the Earth. I'm willing to bet that there's a giant grumpy hippopotamus asleep within the bowels of the planet who wakes up with a bit of a temper tantrum every 12,000 years or so. But it seems about on the same footing as trying to bring up the lost city of Atlantis into any conversation as evidence for the devastation that these pole shifts have wreaked in the past. We're talking about a fictional island which Plato, knew I got it right, completely made up in 360 BC to make a point about the dangers of hostile imperialism. We might as well be searching for fucking Narnia. And yet, so much of the evidence that Hapgood's put forward that Hapgood puts forward is related to those maps which apparently depict a lost continent. He actually claims to have hundreds of maps in his collection which all point to the same conclusion, although the majority of them have never been offered up for public viewing. The main map that gets spread onto the table as proof of is the portion of the Piri Reis map from 1513, a map which also happens to contain images of sea monsters, men with dog faces, and a headless man having a chat with a monkey. Reliable source there, isn't it? But we have to question the credibility of a map which seems to include a mixture of real places and mythical locations which we know for sure have never existed, while strangely excluding locations that were known at the time. Yeah, it just sounds like Piri Race was a bit shit. Why is he so famous? Because he had one map where he made a big mistake, and now he's Piri Race. Like, people know Piri Race. You've heard the name Piri Race. Like, what the fuck? There is some debate over, like, name another cartographer. <laughs> Mercator. And he also had a bit of a shit map. There is some debate over whether Piri Race has had quite as much ancient source material as he claims, and just how accurate that source material would have been in the first place. Long before Antarctica was first spotted in 1820, it was speculated as far back as ancient times that there must be some undiscovered continent lying on the south of the Earth, but nobody really had a clue about it, so some of the earliest world maps just planted a misshapen blob there, which were given labels such as the Southern Lands Not Yet Known. Habgood may have been under the impression that the blob on the 1513 map might have been home to a lost civilization living in a warmer Antarctica. Oh my god, dude, <laughs> it's a wild ass speculation. But it has been disputed that Hapgood's blob, great name for a continent, make a note, really resembles Antarctica at all in, in size and shape. It could have just been one of the many phantom blobs slapped onto an unreliable world map created by people who didn't really know what the world looked like yet. Even Hapgood himself admits that much of the map is completely wrong or mislabeled, yet for some reason he seems to have convinced himself that Piri Race was clearly firing on all cylinders when it came to depicting a fictional city in a misplaced continent and having a headless man talk to a dog, because why not? I wouldn't have trusted Piri Race to point me in the right direction to the fucking Waffle House, but let's sail away from fictional islands and turn our attention to more factual matters, like those flash-frozen woolly mammoths, for example. I'm pretty sure that woolly mammoths once roamed the Earth, unlike the high-brain Atlanteans. So, there must have been something fishy going on with the flash-frozen variety, which were discovered with fresh buttercups in their mouths. Well, it seems there's quite a significant difference between the original press reports from the turn of the 20th century and the more contemporary accounts retold by polar truthers. There was no great flurry of discovery of flash-frozen woolly mammoths. German entomologist Alfred Otto Herz did indeed find a woolly mammoth carcass by the Berezhova River in Siberia, and it's true that he found small superficial parts of the cadaver had been quite well preserved in the ice, so much so that he later considered making a snack out of it. But the internal organs of the carcasses uncovered during this period were found to have rotted away long before the ice set in. Bro, if you can you imagine taking something frozen out of your freezer? 
and like half of it's rotted away and you're like, yeah, I'll slice off that other bit that looks good and eat it. You maniac. Otto, Alfred Otto Herz, apparently found traces of food between the animal's teeth, which is not entirely surprising as toothpicks had not yet been invented, but over the years this somehow evolved into a story in which he plucked out fresh buttercups from the beast's mouth. He didn't believe that this particular woolly mammoth had been frozen to death at all. He thought it more likely that it had clumsily wandered off the top of a cliff and plummeted to its grisly demise, an important point which gets forgotten in modern variations of the tale. Yeah, but my, like my example of just having a stroke or whatever, it's like, yeah, okay, people suddenly die. <laughs> It's not rocket science, is it? And as for his woolly mammoth banquet, it was reportedly something he did half-jokingly, suggesting he make a meal out of the better-preserved parts of the cadaver, but he quickly went off the idea when he was hit by the smell of decomposed flesh during the kitchen preparation. Yes, exactly. Like, just like what I said, he's not a maniac, he's just like, oh yeah, gross. Not gonna eat that. Not even the most generous dollop of reggae reggae sauce would have been likely to cheer up this meal. He did apparently serve a tiny portion of it to some dogs in the expedition, and they survived the experience, though they weren't able to provide a detailed critique. I suspect it tasted a bit like beef jerky. But it appears that more rational and sensible press reports from the turn of the 20th century were gradually embellished over the years, reaching a point where everyone seemed convinced that hundreds of flash-frozen woolly mammoths had been found with blooming flowers in their mouths and slightly startled expressions on their faces. Whilst we still don't know what exactly caused the mass extinction of the woolly mammoth, we can rest assured that they weren't all instantly frozen by a cataclysmic pole shift. You know why we can be assured of that? Because there's no evidence whatsoever, as often is the case with decoding the unknown. Things are very easy to decode. So this doesn't really leave us with much else to go on. As we mentioned before, Charles Hapgood was no geologist, and his work seems more rooted in excitable speculation than any real evidence. He openly concedes in his later book that he had no idea what would cause an Earth-crustal displacement other than a mysterious unidentified causative force beneath the surface of the Earth, but the force required for such a rapid shift would need to be driven by such impossible power that it would most likely just rip the whole planet apart instead of shuffling things around a bit. He also doesn't seem to be able to make up his mind about the specifics of what exactly he's proposing. On one page of his original book, he might talk about the astonishingly rapid effects of a sudden quick cataclysm, but a few pages later he's suggesting that the displacement happens over centuries or even millennia. Big brains today feel that any cataclysmic pole shifts from history would have left compelling geological evidence in their wake, something a bit more persuasive than a pirate treasure map pointing out where dragons. Meanwhile, the later wider acceptance of plate tectonics has led to further gradually useful and credible discoveries relating to how continents evolve and really do move about a bit, around a bit during a true polar wonder, which is quite different from what Hapgood was hypothesizing. It could be argued that it's not possible to conclusively disprove the Earth crust displacement theory, but that's not really the point. Yeah, any time people's eye can't not prove it, it's like, no! <laughs> no <it> works! <laughs> It's also not possible to conclusively disprove my own theory on the giant, grumpy hippopotamus asleep within the bowels of the planet, but I'm not expecting a Nobel Prize in the post anytime soon. No, no, exactly. Well said, Danny. That's like the teapot thing, isn't it? The hippopotamus. In short, Hapgood's work was met largely with scorn within the scientific community when first published, and it's now widely disregarded as an outdated idea based on incomplete data and misunderstanding but Joe Rogan would have him on his show. Yet it's a theory which shows no signs of freezing over in disinterest. If anything, we seem to be bringing up the perceived dangers and devastation of imminent polar shifts more than any other point during the last 800 million years. And there might just be another hidden agenda at work. You know what's weird? In my mind, the people who don't believe in climate change would believe in this. Does that? Does anyone else get that vibe? Like someone's like, oh no, we're not causing climate change. That's not real. Climate change isn't happening. It's a polar shift thing. It's like, what? I just, I don't understand how you get there in your mind. Or maybe that's not true. Maybe the people are just like, no, that's not real. Climate change is real. Because that feels like much more consistent argument, at least, even if it's wrong. But I feel like the people who don't believe in climate change would also believe in this for some I don't know why. Maybe it's just because they're a bit dumb. Turning up the heat. Or more, more like super impressionable or whatever. Back when Habgood was waffling on about geopolitical pole shifts and Chad Thomas was waffling on about magnetic pole shifts, it's fair to say that the effects of climate change were not really on the forefront of people's minds. Of course, it's a very different story today, but there are still those who insist that climate change is just a clever hoax perpetrated by tree huggers, China, scientists trying to keep themselves in a job, the Illuminati and David Attenborough, who always seem to be moaning about something. The issue here is that some conspiracy theorists 
have also latched onto the idea that if even if climate change is real, a bit far-fetched I know, then it's got nothing to do with fossil fuel emissions generated by the human race. It's all Mother Earth's fault and it's perfectly natural. Climate change is all down to random planetary forces moving the continents around and there's nothing we can do about it. Oh my god. Yeah, I was right. They do. So instead of piling all the blame and responsibility onto ourselves, we should just shrug and accept it whilst going back to sucking from plastic straws, traveling in private jets, spraying pesticides in each other's faces and burning tars in our backyard without feeling the slightest hint of guilt. Okay, those ones, like, come on. Like, can't we just have our private jets? Can't we? Can't we just have one nice, I'm just kidding. But plastic straws? Come on now, we need those. Paper straws are fucking shite. Also, have I ranted about this before? McDonald's, get your shit together. I don't know how it is in the rest of the world, but here, you go, like, let's say you get a big Coke from McDonald's. Paper cup, fine. Paper straw, fine. Why the fuck is this thing, you know that thing? The, the, the water, the, 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 the holder, the thing that clips onto the top where the straw goes through, whatever the fuck that's called. That's made out of plastic. Make that out of paper and make the straw out of plastic. How fucking hard is it? What, the, the straw is like just dissolving. Have you ever tried having a milkshake? A McDonald's milkshake with one of their paper straws? It's a joke. Get rid of the plastic thing that you put on top. Make that paper and give us a fucking plastic straw. I'm gonna have to start ordering plastic straws from like AliExpress if they finally ban them here. Which I know they will eventually, but I know someone in China is going to be able to make that shit for me. And I'll just buy thousands of them. And I will use them. I'll take them with me. And this kind of disinformation can be alarming when you see a whole bunch of new TikTok videos released in 2023, which talk of impending doom from the effects of an overdue polar shift, which is either going to boil or freeze your hometown tomorrow. But they're quickly racking up over 20 million views each. Oh my lord. The conspiracy. I should just start a channel. Fuck the code in the unknown. Just be like the unknown. And it's just like, yeah, all this bullshit. I'll just make videos about it. People will be like, oh, he sounds smart. <laughs> Listen to his accent. He knows everything. And people would watch it and believe it. And that's depressing. The conspiracy theorists have seized the fairly innocent ponderings of misinformed writers and are now using them as ammunition to convince you that reusable shopping bags are just largely a waste of everyone's time. If you're still a little worried about getting instantly frozen to death tomorrow afternoon, let's just recap the main points. Magnetic role reversals are real, and it's been an unusually long time since we last experienced one. But it's impossible to predict when the next one will take place, and even if one swung into action tomorrow, you would have noticed the relatively minor effects for a good few thousand years. True polar wonders are also very real and have a more significant impact on the Earth over an incredibly long period of time, but bearing in mind that the rate of wander is less than one degree every million years, there's no need to think about moving house just yet. As for cataclysmic geographical pole shifts, this is just a hypothesis from a less enlightened period, which is now largely dismissed by experts as nothing more than pseudoscience backed up by zero evidence. So next time you're sipping cocktails while enjoying a sun-baked holiday with Barry Onions, don't fret too much about the possibility of suddenly getting shifted closer to the polar regions and instantly being frozen like a fish finger. Save all that mental energy for worrying about getting struck by a random asteroid, a high-energy solar flare, a local gamma-ray burst, or getting vaporized in a nuclear war. And don't forget to send a postcard sooner rather than later. And that's where we end today's episode. Thanks so much for being here. If you're listening to this show on uh, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, make sure you give it a rating or a, view, a review, whatever you need to do. Thank you so much. If you're watching on YouTube, like and subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.